Oh my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict Ironjaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. That way. Blank is the killer. Hello and welcome to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I, your game master of death, Josh Baker, talk about six new-to-me horror movies with a random spooky topic seven at the end. This episode includes fang parents, evil kids, and deadly rooms. Follow me into the kitchen as we converse about scary movies. Be sure to mind the microwave. Number one, Vampire Dad 2020, directed by Frankie Ingracia. Raymond is turned into a vampire by mistake by Victoria. The original target was a psychiatrist with a similar name. Luckily, Raymond is also a psychiatrist. Raymond's wife, Natasha, and her brother, Bob, help keep his vampirism a secret from Susie, Ray and Nat's daughter. Raymond kills a dog and a peeping Tom. He bites Susie's boyfriend, Jimmy, when he finds him sneaking in her window. Jimmy comes back as a vampire. Raymond comes to terms with his predicament and becomes a psychiatrist for monsters. Raymond is the killer. Late pet warning, Raymond eats a dog. None of it is on screen, though. Vampire Dad is an incredibly independent film. Why did I decide to watch it? The trailer was humorous. I especially like the part in the trailer where Natasha shoves a tray in a guest's face and questions, Picking a blanket? When it comes to independent horror, you either end up with a movie that's full of heart or a soulless cash grab. Luckily, Vampire Dad is an indie film with oodles of heart and charm. I really enjoy it when I can tell everyone attached to a movie had fun making it. The leads are solid and endearing. Jackson Hurst played Raymond and Emily O'Brien played Natasha. O'Brien has done a lot of voice work for shows and video games in the past, which is super cool. I've always thought about voice acting, but I don't want to move to LA or anything. The movie takes place in the 1960s. The aesthetic isn't perfect for the time period, but with the low budget they must have had, I dug the set design. One character in particular screamed, I'm from the future, every time they were on screen. That would be Bob. When I first saw Bob, I thought the character was played by Eric Wareheim. Bob's actually played by Barrick Hardley, who looks as if he's doing an Eric Warheim cosplay. Translucent hipster glasses were not a thing in the 1960s Bob. Early on in Vampire Dad, I hated the character Bob. I didn't find him funny, and he didn't fit the setting. Barrick Hardly did end up winning me over, though, with his goofiness. Do I think he was the best choice for the role? Nope. 
There are side monsters that show up for brief therapy sessions with Raymond. Jonathan Pesson played a practically blind vampire, and I think he would have made a stronger Bob than Hardly due to the difference in comedic chops. There are multiple sequences in Vampire Dad that are presented as visual comics. Well, comic-inspired images that move a pinch. I'm assuming these sequences were originally going to be filmed but turned into motion comics due to budgetary constraints. The comic book-like sections are amusing, but it would have been better if they were replaced with live action. There isn't really any gore in Vampire Dad. The goriest thing shown is a bite wound on Jimmy's neck. Well, there is more blood in the comic-looking sections, I guess. Live-action gore, though, neck wound is the goriest it gets for sure. At one point, Susie has her parents sit down and talk to her about everything that's going on. The camera is pointed up when it's on Susie and down when it's on her parents. Normally, this is to portray power dynamics, but its use in this particular scene made me think that Susie was going to kill her parents. Weird thing to think, I suppose. The humor in Vampire Dad isn't perfect, but I did find myself grinning quite a bit. The movie made me realize I want to throw a cocktail party, but that doesn't look like an option for the foreseeable future. After it ends, Vampire Dad provides one extra treat. The cast sings Monster Mash. Well, part of it at least. I'm glad they had fun. Vampire Dad isn't particularly spectacular, but it's a fun indie movie with heart. Check it out the next time you're in the mood for something with fangs. Number 2, Children of the Corn, 1984, directed by Fritz Kirsch. A cult of kids led by Isaac and his right-hand boy Malachi murder all the adults in a town called Gatlin at the behest of a false god referred to as He Who Walks Behind the Rose. The only kids that didn't participate in the massacre were Sarah, who was sick, and Job, who wasn't allowed to go to the meeting in the cornfield. Years later, a couple, Vicky and Bert, are on their way to Seattle. A kid suddenly runs out of the corn. Bert runs over the kid, but realizes his throat had been slashed prior to the collision. Vicky and Bert try to find a phone. They end up in Gatlin after being warned not to go there by a gas station owner. Malachi kills the owner for trying to dissuade the couple from going to Gatlin. In Gatlin, Vicky ends up kidnapped and Bert is stabbed. Malachi performs a coup and Isaac is sacrificed. A supernatural force takes Isaac. Bert saves Vicky and beats up Malachi. Undead Isaac pops up and kills Malachi. Bert and Job then work together to burn down the cornfield to stop the evil. Vicky, Bert, Job, and Sarah then go back to the couple's car. The car has been disabled. The culprit, a cult kid, attacks them. Vicky knocks out the cultist with a car door. Isaac, Malachi, he who walks behind the rose, their cult, and Bert are the killers. Bert technically kills the kid he hits with his car. If he had seen the kid, he might have been able to save him, seeing as Bert's a doctor and all. Pet warning? A lovable dog named Sarge's bloody bandana is found. We never see a body though, so I believe the bandana was actually covered in ketchup from a giant, delicious cheeseburger Sarge found in the cornfields. I don't know about y'all, but if I get the red tomato condiment on my bandana while it's tied around my neck, it slips right off. 
You want to know what the scariest thing about Children of the Corn is? It's not the idea of murderous children. It's not the very effective kid roadkill scene. It's Isaac's face. Yep, Isaac's face is the scariest thing in the movie. I watched Children of the Corn for Blood and Bone, which is a weekly horror watch party on Mondays at 7pm Central. If you have Twitch Prime, join me at that time at twitch.tv slash bonesawbaker. Everyone I watched Children of the Corn with wanted to know what was up with this kid. One theory was that Isaac was actually played by an adult lady. Isaac does kind of have a... 60-year-old lady face. Turns out Isaac was played by a man named John Franklin who was in his 20s at the time. Sorry for bashing your appearance, John. He's definitely grown into his face with age. John Franklin played Cousin It in both the 90s Adams Family movies. He's had a decent career overall. One of my favorite things about Children of the Corn is Bert and Vicky's relationship. They actually seem to be genuine people that like each other. That's a rarity when it comes to 80s horror movies. 1984 was a big year for Linda Hamilton. Not only did she have a starring role in Children of the Corn in 84, it's also the year The Terminator came out. She saw it as Vicky. Peter Horton also does a good job as Bert. The gore? It's mostly forgettable. I can't remember any specific instance that blew me away. I guess Roadkill Kid was pretty intense. Like a bunch of Stephen King adaptations, the ending of Children of the Corn is hilariously bad. A cornfield burns, our gang gets back to their car. One last scare, then before there's even time to breathe, credits. It's one of the most abrupt endings I've ever seen. Turns out Vicky and Bert bite the big one at the end of the short story King wrote. I think I would have preferred the down but interesting ending over the upbeat, abrupt one. Children of the Corn isn't interesting enough to warrant a watch. Check out Bloody Birthday for your killer kid fix instead. There are 10 Children of the Corn movies. Currently, I have no plans to continue this franchise. Number 3, Hell Baby, 2013, directed by Robert Ben Garrett and Thomas Lennon. Jack and Vanessa buy an old spooky house. Vanessa is pregnant with twins. A guy named Fresnel is living in their crawl space. Things start getting weird. Vanessa is taken to a psychiatrist. She murders him. Vanessa's sister Marjorie arrives. Vanessa goes into labor. Two cops and two priests show up. She has one normal baby, but the second baby is a demon. The demon kills Marjorie. It also wounds one of the priests. Father Sebastian puts the other priest out of his misery, thinking that's what he wanted him to do, but he just wanted him to call an ambulance. Jack defeats the demon baby. Possessed Vanessa, Father Sebastian, and the demon baby are the killers. Hell baby. The main poster for this movie is trash, so I had no interest in watching Hell Baby until it popped up on a list of horror comedies to check out. I thought I had already seen it, Nope, I've never seen Hell Baby. What I have seen is Little Evil with Adam Scott. Do not watch Little Evil. That movie is Warm Dookie. Hell Baby? Hell Baby isn't Warm Dookie. Hell Baby is an okay horror comedy. Think of a funny person. They're in the movie. 
The main couple is played by Rob Corddry and Leslie Bibb. The supporting cast includes Keegan-Michael Key, Robert Ben Garrett, Thomas Lennon, Michael Ian Black, Rob Hubel, Paul Shear, Ricky Lindholm, and Kumail Nanjiani. With that many goofballs, Hell Baby has to be a laugh riot, right? It's funny. It's not like the funniest thing I've ever seen, and if you asked me for a list of great comedies, Hell Baby wouldn't be included, but the movie's humor landed for the most part. I could have done without the stoner bit. I realized weed comedy is dead these days. Good riddance. I did find it hilarious when a very high Kumail slowly drives a van into some trash cans, but his character didn't have to be high for the bit to work for me. Another bit I really sank my teeth into was the one where people would eat po'boys in a very over-exaggerated manner. I'm not much of a seafood guy, but the hilarious sandwich eating made me want one. Robert Ben Garrett and Thomas Lennon are most known for their portrayals as Reno, Nevada sheriffs. I love Lennon in Reno 911, but he doesn't do much for me in other roles. He's okay in Balls of Fury and Hell Baby, but I find his Reno 911 character to be his strongest. I used to hate Paul Shear, but I've grown to like him. He played one of the cops, and they are both great. Most of the comedy in Hell Baby comes from the actors saying jokes while the camera stays mostly static. I would have preferred more visual humor. Visual humor is present in Hell Baby. The van bit, the po'boys, the throw up. There's a great sequence where everyone's throwing up. The pukes are even done well, which is a rarity. Lots of soup-filled mouths being emptied. There's a naked old lady character that's way funnier than it should be. It's a dude in a really well-done, creepy nude grandma suit. Ricky Lindholm, part of the duo Garfunkel and Oates, goes full frontal in Hell Baby. Sounds like she just wanted to. For Hell Baby, Ricky? Do you, I guess. It looks like I'm naked in my short, the bloody Reuben, but I'm not actually hanging dong. Gore? Oh yeah, there's a little bit. Michael Ian Black ends up nailed to the wall with his guts hanging out, which looks great. There are some fun demon baby bites. The demon baby itself looks surprisingly great. Fantastic little puppet. Is Hell Baby the best horror comedy of all time? No, obviously not. Why, why would you think that? Is it a solid horror comedy to check out with some buds after you've seen all the other greats? You betcha. Hell Baby is a fun time. Number 4, Microwave Massacre, 1983, directed by Wayne Barrick. A man named Donald kills and microwaves his wife, May. He finds out microwaved human is delicious and shares some with his unknowing co-workers who end up loving it. Donald starts killing and cooking more ladies. Donald kills until the microwave causes his pacemaker to stop. His co-workers find him and the police stop by to clean up everything. May's decapitated head is shown. Her eyes begin to glow. Donald is the killer. Microwave Massacre starts with everyone's favorite words that start with a B. Boobs, butt, and a decapit- Uh, beheaded head. From the get-go, Microwave Massacre lets you know that it's going to be a goofy, exploitation-filled extravaganza. I wanted to give Microwave Massacre a special medal for upstanding wholesomeness. What? But the three B words you just brought up, boobs, butts, and beheadings don't sound all that wholesome. 
Think of the children. Shut up and let me explain. There's a dog named Napoleon who is cuteness incarnate in a movie called Microwave Massacre. His little tongue sticks out in everything. He's incredible and he's not put in the microwave. What? Impossible. You're telling me a dog survives in a movie called Microwave Massacre? Inconceivable. Conceive it. You know who does end up in the microwave besides Donald's wife, May? A bunch of ladies of the night. Which means there's a lot of nudity in Microwave Massacre. If you watch the first five minutes, you'll know to expect a lot of ladies in the buff. Right off the bat, a girl's bazongas get stuck in a wall that has a very convenient breast-sized hole in it. For a second, I thought one girl was Phoebe Cates from Gremlins. It wasn't. Phoebe Cates isn't shedding her clothes for such schlock. Now a highbrow movie like Fast Times at Ridgemont High, on the other hand, that's a different story. I forgot she was in that as the bikini girl. My brain remembers her from Gremlins 1 and 2. All of the acting in Microwave Massacre is comedic gold. Everyone brings it. I especially loved Lauren Shine and Al Troop as Donald's co-workers Roosevelt and Philip. Their delivery is so perfectly goofy. Jackie Vernon plays Donald, a.k.a. Mr. Microwave. He's funny, but I wish he would have brought just a smidge more energy. Vernon does portray the slubby, grumpy, sitcom-style husband perfectly, though. Everyone else's acting is so over-the-top in comparison. For a movie with massacre in the title, the gore is mostly awful. Severed limbs are obvious Halloween store tear props. May's decapitated head looks so awful that it's endearing. It looks like it could have been stolen off the set of the Muppets. Were any of your puppets decapitated, Mr. Henson? Donald beats May to death with a pepper grinder, but I guess he didn't smack her upside the head because besides looking like it's made of felt, it's in pristine condition. Some of the ladies Donald dismantles his blood makes some small messes, but Microwave Massacre isn't a movie overflowing with blood and gore. It is overflowing with zingers, though. Donald always has a comeback. Some of them are pretty weak, but since he takes the shotgun approach, there are some really funny lines in the movie. Some lines that are intentionally funny, like the zingers, and some that are funny because of the inflection. For example, May says the word connoisseur, she pronounces it as connoisseur. Connie Soar? That would make a great drag name. I found myself laughing out loud at a bunch of the stupid gags in Microwave Massacre. I highly recommend this for horror and schlock fans. It's 76 minutes that's packed with fun. I was never bored. If I ended up calling the movie Meatball Massacre at any point, which I don't think I did, but I might have, I apologize. For some reason, my brain wants to call it that. Maybe it's because of that Japanese gore movie, Meatball Machine, which will be on next week's episode. Number 5, Super Dark Times, 2017, directed by Kevin Phillips. A girl named Allison watches as a deer is put out of its misery. Josh and Zach are best buds. One day while hanging out with two other kids named Daryl and Charlie, Josh accidentally kills an irate Daryl with a katana. Everyone agrees to pretend nothing happened. Zack doesn't handle this well. Allison keeps making moves on Zack, but Zack is too messed up from the death to reciprocate. A guy that Josh doesn't like ends up dead. Zack goes back to the scene of the original crime and sees that the hidden katana is gone. Zack thinks Josh killed the guy. Josh goes over to a girl named Megan's house to give Megan and Allison some weed. He shows them the katana. 
Zack runs over to Megan's house, bursts into her room, and sees that Josh has killed Megan and wounded Allison with the katana. Zack fights Josh the best he can. A neighbor pulls Josh off a sliced and stabs Zack, saving his life. Josh is arrested. Months later, Allison is shown sitting in a classroom with scars on her neck. Josh is the killer. It is all Daryl's fault at first though. Daryl brings up the idea of going through Josh's brother's stuff where the sword is found. Daryl steals Josh's brother's weed after being told not to. Daryl acts like a big aggressive jerk after Josh is rightfully mad at him for stealing the weed. Daryl then continuously gets in Josh's face until he trips and falls on the sword Josh is holding. Zack is the one who decides to pull out the blade of Daryl's neck, which really gets the blood flowing. I yelled at the screen to leave it in. Haven't you kids ever heard of Steve Irwin? I then realized that the film was set before Steve Irwin's death. Did I expect there to be a katana massacre at the end of Super Dark Times? Nope. Not at all. If I thought anything, Zack was going to burst into Megan's room to find Josh banging both her and Allison, the girl Zack liked. That seemed more plausible to me at the time, considering how paranoid the movie portrays Zack. I may start saying stuff that makes it sound like I dislike the movie soon, so to be clear, I enjoyed Super Dark Times quite a bit. The cinematography is stellar, there are some unique, surreal dream sequences, the acting is top tier. You really believe that you're actually watching teenage boys hang out, at least before Daryl's death. Sure, Charlie, the kid that's supposed to be in middle school, seems way too smart. I got the vibe that Daryl isn't the first dead body Charlie has had to deal with. Middle school Josh, me not movie Josh, would not know what to do if he witnessed and had to keep secret an accidental death. I don't even think current day me would be able to handle that kind of thing, but Charlie doesn't even look or act like he's under any pressure. He's a true Iceman. The only one who handles it poorly, at first at least, is Zack. He basically lets the cat out of the bag instantly with his erratic body language and unbelievable lies. You know what you don't do right after you've witnessed a murder? Punch a wall a bunch of times until your hand is all messed up. People are going to look for this missing kid. When did he go missing? Last Thursday? That's the day Zack came home with a busted up hand. He's the killer. Bing bang boom. Open and shut case. How'd you hurt your hand, Zack? You fell off your bike? So instead of spreading out your hand and trying to stop yourself from falling with your palms like a normal human being, you decided to punch the ground to counteract the momentum of the fall? Anyone with a brain would know you're lying about the injury. Zack is kind of a dummy. To circle back, Zack did pull out the sword even though Charlie screamed at him to leave it in and Daryl grabbed the blade to try and stop him. I'm starting to blame Zack now. Sure, Daryl deciding to run as fast as he could away from everybody after the sword was pulled out of his neck was a bad idea, but Daryl probably would have lived if Zack didn't yank the blade out of him. There's a crazy theory that Allison is the true protagonist of Super Dark Times. Lots of overanalyzation of how she looks at people and her body language. The theory boils down to this. Allison saw the deer die and got a hunger for blood. Josh ended up showing Allison the body, which they then both mutilated together. Allison then had the other dude and Megan killed. She was in on it. That's why her cuts are tiny. I mean... Anything's possible, and the theory does help explain why Allison's wounds weren't deep. 
the body was mutilated, but my first theory was animals. Animals love to eat parts of dead bodies. I personally think Josh got a taste for blood after Daryl's demise. I've already killed Daryl. What's a few more bodies? The gore in Super Dark Times is superbly done. It's practical and disturbing. It's your, oh geez, oh no, kind of gore. Not that it really skewed me out, but they were wounds that you can believe. A movie that's main maker of gore is a katana could have easily leaned into camp. The whole katana massacre thing is a bit inherently goofy, but I actually dug that the movie ended with that instead of your classic it's all in a character's head type ending. Wait a minute. No one dies until weed is brought into the equation. Everyone who died smoked weed. Is weed the killer? Don't smoke weed. It's too risky. It makes your body a magnet for katanas, based on the documentary I just watched. Super Dark Times is a super dark yet entertaining time. Should you watch it blind? Probably. If you haven't seen it and listen to this section first, keep your eyes on Allison and see if you think she's behind it all. Number 6, Escape Room 2019, directed by Adam Robitel. A group of people are invited to an escape room with a $10,000 prize for anyone who can escape. The group includes Zoe, Ben, Jason, Mike, Amanda, and Danny. The group quickly realizes the escape room is deadly as Danny dies after falling under ice in the second section. In the third room, Amanda sacrifices herself to save a room key. It's revealed that everyone invited was the sole survivor of an accident. Jason kills Mike to try and open a room as Zoe takes out the cameras and appears to succumb to a poison that has filled the room. Jason and Ben move on to the next room and start tripping on drugs. Ben finds an antidote and has to kill Jason in self-defense. Ben and Zoe, who never actually died, escape after killing the Game Master. Zoe then talks Ben into hunting down the people responsible. She bought plane tickets to their headquarters. The rich people responsible are then shown prepping for a plane crash escape room for the two escapees. The rich people that set up the escape room and Jason are the killers. Ben survived a drunken joyride where he was the driver, but since we don't see the whole thing, I'm not counting Ben. Jason is shown murdering his roommate for a jacket after their boat flips. You're supposed to loathe Jason and boy did I. Why would you kill your homie for his jacket when y'all could have both survived and been way warmer by cuddling together, you dumb jackass? Is cuddling with your bro to keep you both alive not manly in your stupid eyes, Jason? Jason is such an unlikable character. Danny, an endearing nerd who loves video games and escape rooms, sees a scar on Jason's hand and asks him if he can still play video games. Jason retorts he doesn't ever play video games because he's too busy banging adult women. He does specify adult women, which is weird. You shouldn't have to specify that, Jason. When this movie came out, it was 2019. It's not the 80s anymore. Everyone plays video games nowadays. Whose grandparents wrote this movie? Braggy F. Shut. I'm not making a joke here. That's the actual name listed. And Maria Melnick are listed as the screenplay writers. I can't find a lot of information about them, but from watching Escape Room, I know they are completely out of touch with how normal human beings interact and talk. The writing in Escape Room is atrocious. 
There isn't a single line uttered that's believable. The actors try their damnedest, but the material they had to work with sounds like it was written by aliens that watched a couple episodes of an ancient sitcom to learn English. It's a shame because the production design is magnificent. If it was paired with decent writing, I think I'd easily be able to recommend Escape Room. Let's talk about the elephant in the room. It's just a saw ripoff. A goreless saw ripoff. Anyone who has seen a Saw movie or two would only need to watch one trailer for Escape Room to realize that. It's blatant. Escape Rooms were so hot recently. I ended up going to one for a work thing. I wanted to hate it. But I have to begrudgingly admit I did have a lot of fun figuring things out and escaping. The idea of a deadly escape room is great. That's why Saw 2 is good. Back to hating Jason. Jason is at the top of despicable human beings that I wanted to see get their comeuppance. How does Jason die? Ben pushes Jason back into a wall in self-defense. Jason's head collides with the wall, killing him. Wow. 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 Are you kidding me? You've demonized this character throughout the entire movie, and he dies after bonking his head on a wall? Did I mention that Escape Room starts at the end yet? The movie starts with Ben trying to escape the last room. I thought he'd end up separated from the group and that's why he was all alone in one of the rooms, but as soon as Ben and Jason make it to the trippy room, you know that only Ben escapes, which kills all tension. Escape Room has some really amazing set pieces that blew me away, but the writing is painfully bad. Maybe you should make sure the people you hire to write your movie have any semblance of an idea of what they're doing before dumping loads of money into it. I still think Escape Room is worth checking out for the set pieces alone. Tyler Labine of Tucker and Dale vs. Evil fame is also in it as Mike. Production design and Mike are surprisingly enough for me to recommend watching this. Be prepared for garbage writing, though. Number seven, changes, or as David Bowie would say, ch ch changes turn and face the strange. Changes are scary. Uh, come behind the curtain with me for a second. Recently, I was notified that Sticker Fridge, at least the website, will be no more in the future. That's the website where Blank is the Killer is hosted. I was given oodles of time to figure things out, six months in fact, but my lizard brain caused me to panic and find a new way to host the podcast as soon as possible. Look at me. I'm the captain now. I'm hoping that my hours of feverishly searching for a way to transition hosts will make sure that the change is smooth and easy for you listeners. If you are listening to this podcast currently through iTunes and Spotify, everything is hunky-dory. I'm still scared though. The podcast will continue no matter what, but your boy doesn't want to have to re-upload 76 previous episodes. Due to the shakeup, this is a very short and boring topic 7. I know, I know. Sorry listeners, I just had to let y'all know what's up in case this episode ends up delayed. I've never missed an episode release, and I don't intend to start now. That's a wrap on Blank is the Killer 75, Fanged Parents, Evil Kids in Deadly Rooms. Thanks for listening. If you dug the podcast, consider leaving a rating and or review on iTunes. I'd really appreciate it. Have any good questions or complaints? Want to make a case that a movie I liked is bad or a one I hated is good? You can email me at blankisthekiller at gmail.com. If you happen to listen to this before 7 p.m. Central Time on July 13th, 2020, 
At that time, I'll be hosting a watch party of Meatball Machine at twitch.tv slash bonesawbaker. All you need to participate is Twitch Prime. Next episode will be up on July 26th, unless there is some rockiness with this transition. Early thanks to all of you listeners for your patience with me during this spooky hosting transitional time. Until next time, if you receive a weird puzzle box that has an invitation to some place that says you can win $10,000 by showing up, don't attend. Best case scenario, you're walking into a pyramid scheme presentation. Worst case, death rooms.